podcast, showing you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Griggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Today, I have John Romanello, who's an author, angel investor, media personality, and consultant who helps entrepreneurs improve their communication skills and increase their revenue through writing. John is well known across so many different industries. He's written hundreds of articles from topics like business, marketing, to fitness, self-development, and he's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Engineering the Alpha. In 2015, John founded Wellspring Media, a consulting company focused on helping increase income and influence through effective branding and storytelling, which is how I met John. He currently serves as an advisor to nearly a dozen companies. He freelances as a ghostwriter and a copy doctor and offers these services as a writing mentor and consultant to help content creators become better writers. And on the very first day I met John virtually, uh, something had happened in my personal life, which was a bit of a a hard pill to swallow that day. And I'd been crying all morning and was trying to compose myself to talk to John and his team for the first time. And there were three three males who were gonna teach us how to write, meet another woman. And I get on this call and I'm listening to John and I've got my tears finally stuck in my eyeballs. They're no longer running down my face. I'm like, okay, I've got it together, good. And the first thing John says is something about setting our intentions. And so naturally I've been thinking about my intentions all morning and the tears start streaming down my face. I can't hold it in. And I looked at the three men on the screen and I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) way to make an impression ever. You've got it within the first 10 minutes. You're crying. And my experience has been some men are great with emotions and some men are not. And I had no idea about the three men in front of me. And right away, John was validating, open. He asked if we needed to go there. And I could tell right away my emotions, uh, he he like walked into it. I didn't scare him off. So I was like, whoa, okay, this is not quite what I expected. And I watched him on the internet about how he approaches relationships with his fiance. And I thought it was really important to talk about, to have him on here and to talk about the way he approaches the world, his fiance and emotions. So I just want to say, John, thanks for the safety you provided. And uh, you're just a, a neat, a neat guy, a neat, a neat, amazing person that has the unique ability to make people feel safe and special and to just be their authentic self. So thank you for showing up the way you do. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that acknowledgement and, um, and, that, and, and sharing that story. That is, it's very sweet. It's a, it's something that is pretty specific to the container that we were in. And I'm, I'm very happy that we were able to support one another through that. And, and I, I, I would say that, um, I have met many people of, of all genders who are not particularly comfortable with a lot of emoting, particularly in, in new places. And so, um, you know, I, I, I suppose the experience of most people is that on the receiving end, men are not as, as comfortable with it. Um, but as you mentioned, I have, I have a lot of experience there, but it was also really wonderful, not only to be able to 
to provide that, but to be the recipient of it and to just, and, and see you in that vulnerable place. And it was a great honor to hold space. And so I, I thank you as well. And, and for sharing that story today. Yeah, it was um, a very powerful moment for me. So yeah, it was, it was a huge deal actually. Mm -hmm. So, so John, um, where I'm going to fast forward to eventually is how you show up in your relationship with your current fiance, how you validate support and give empathy. And I think I just shared the story of how you're able to listen, show up and be empathetic. And I'm curious, in your relationships, has this been something you've always been able to do, or is this something you've needed to work on? Can you share the story of how you've developed your ability to hold space and emotions for others? Like many people, before I had done a lot of healing work, I sought unconsciously to recreate some patterns and, and some of the situations that felt familiar. And I, I, I think language is very important. It's something that I teach and something on which we've worked together. And I like to make a distinction between comfortable and familiar. You know, um, things can feel very familiar. And, and part of that is the discomfort, is this feeling of dysregulation and that, that being sort of the default setting that you, to which you are accustomed. And I think, Often people stay in uncomfortable situations and unhappy situations because they are familiar, because in some way that that suits them. I, I grew up in, a, in an abusive household. My father was abusive and I had suffered uh, sexual abuse at the hands of a great uncle. And because of this, I was in a very sort of codependent, emotionally enmeshed relationship with my mother after my parents separated. And I, um, and, and that, you know, played itself out in a, in a lot of my um, romantic relationships where I, I was, I sought out people who were codependent and I would look for ways to create the type of chaos that was prevalent when I was a kid. In the case of my ex-wife, I met this amazing woman who was beautiful and brilliant and had a young son. And there was something inside me that was very compelled to save them the way no one had saved my mother and I. And when I, when I met my ex-wife, I was, um, was doing very well professionally and financially, and, and she was sort of up and coming in that regard. And, and, you know, I saw her talent and wanted to, wanted to help and, um, and also just, just provide the, the financial security that, that no one had provided for me. But of course, I, I did not know any of this. I didn't, this was not a conscious thing. Um, I got involved with a woman who, um, I, I don't want to say anything negative about her, but I think she would agree that at that time she had some issues with alcohol. She was not dependent on it. She just was, um, you know, she, she turned into a different person when she, had been drinking and that had played itself out with my, my father's drug problem and my mother's drug problem. So there were there's a lot of repeating of patterns. But the way that I was very messy was um, I, had, I had a lot of challenge with conflict, particularly saying anything that would upset anyone. And so I self-abandoned and I was very, very people-pleasing. And eventually that would get to the point where I felt completely trapped and constrained. And then from there, it would that, that would get to a breaking point, and I would seek validation outside of my relationship from other women, and that would begin with 
with texting and flirtation. And eventually it led to a series of very serious affairs. And I had not been infidelitous in every relationship that I'd been in, but I certainly was in this one. And, you know, when you look at the narrative of that relationship and how that marriage ended, it's very easy to pinpoint the infidelity on my part as the reason the marriage imploded. And I, I certainly take responsibility for all that. I, I don't ever want to pass the buck on that. Those are my choices. It's very clear to me that the need for validation and the need to create chaos in these relationships was, was really a manifestation of trying to create, re recreate the, the trauma of my, of my childhood. But the, the heart of it all was fear, this inability to communicate. I, I, I never really sat my ex-wife down and said, I'm feeling sexually stifled or emotionally stifled, and I am beginning to feel excited by exploring outside the marriage. I, I never really had a, an honest conversation with her in which I told her I believe that I am a polyamorous person. And, my, the, and, and she never sat me down and, and told me a lot of the stuff that I, I think was bothering her. And so we both lacked, and, and more, more so me, I will say, the feeling of safety to adequately communicate the darker parts of ourselves. And we both hid them. And I think from what I've seen, many, many people in relationships do this. We, I, I, for a long time, and I think part of me still does, believed that if anyone saw who I truly was, they would abandon me, they would run. And it has been the greater part of my work to, to slowly, in all of my relationships, reveal more and more of myself. And people who follow me on Instagram or elsewhere, they hear me talk about my polyamory. They hear me talk about BDSM and kink and, and all of the places that I've been messy in my life. And they say, like, how are you so authentic? And um, and, and it's, it's a process, you know, years and years ago, I could not have talked about all of these things openly, but not talking about them in my personal life led to some very negative, painful choices that had real consequences for myself and others. And those patterns still sometimes exhibit to this day where I, I notice myself like not wanting to share things and being very open on, on the internet feels safer in so many ways than sitting down and having a truly vulnerable conversation. And, and so the, the marriage was very painful. And the things that I learned, if you, if you look at, you know, sort of operationally in my life, it, it's very easy to say, you, John learned that he is not a monogamous person, that that, that is not an effective relationship style for him, that he is his sexual um, and, and, and relational orientation are towards openness and freedom. It's very easy to pinpoint those because operationally that's what it looks like. But the, the biggest thing that I learned was how terrified I was of really being seen and communicating and having any sort of, of emotional conflict that led to me being vulnerable about the things I was scared to show people and how much, how much ease, comparative ease I had sabotaging a relationship by acting out sexually and 
it was much easier for people to see me as a cheater and hate me for that and deal with the slings and arrows of that than it was to just be honest about, you know, being upfront and then say like, I, I, I love you. And also I, I, I don't feel that I can be monogamous with you. John, I think you touched on so many really important things. Um, and like when it comes to infidelity, like what you just shared. So it's, it's, always on there's a decision there for whoever makes that choice to be unfaithful but what what a lot of people don't realize is the secret starts long before someone actually crosses the line it's the secret of not sharing your truth it's the share secret of living a parallel life and not letting that person in and so some and then eventually it crosses the line but i think you did a nice job illustrating that there was something that happened long before you were actually unfaithful um, and it is easy to sling the blame at okay well they did this but i think it's also a good message to remember like we're not privy to what's going on behind people's closed doors and we never know what's going on in somebody's life. You talked about that notion, um, if somebody knew you, they would go. If you let them in and were exposed, that they, they would leave. How have you begun to heal that or has it been healed? The more work I do, um, both in therapy and in journaling and self-work and all of the ways that I I approach this, the more that I see that true core wounding, um, it takes, it, it, it's a lifetime to heal. And at the very core of everything, I do fear abandonment. That is a very scary thing for me. And sometimes when you are a person who experiences depression or, or other ways that there, there can be the experience of self-loathing, you try to create that and, and prove to yourself, see, everyone is going to leave me. But the way that I, the way that you, you overcome that, and, and perhaps this is just me because I am after all a, a person of empiricism and, and I like data is evidence. You show just a little bit more of yourself and a little bit more and a little bit more. And every single time, people don't leave, they just accept you. And there is this expression that life happens outside of your comfort zone. And if you imagine your comfort zone as a circle with you in the middle, imagine the, the circumference of the, or the diameter of that circle being like six feet. The idea that life happens outside your comfort zone, it should not happen six feet outside the perimeter of that circle. It happens a few inches. You step just a toe outside of that comfort zone and you observe. And the evidence is the facts are that the consequences are minimal or non-existent. And you do that over and over and over. And as you do that, the, the comfort zone itself expands and what feels safe expands. And you have more evidence of safety. And if you, if you just jump wildly outside the comfort zone and, and you're a mile away, that's trauma. That's terrifying. There's, there's nothing that, that can happen out there that's going to reaffirm that you are safe. And fear is eroded with the experience of limited consequence. And so every time I share more about who I am, in my relationship or in my friendships or even in my relationship with my audience, people don't leave. They're just like, oh, thank you for sharing that, me too. Or 
you know, something along those lines. And and when you do it on a very public platform, it's it's um, you know it, it's it's interesting because you do get pushback, but there's a lot more connection than there is consequence. Well, I think you know I relate a lot to your story and what you're saying. Like I had a deep belief in my life as well that if people really saw me, they would leave. And in my family system, um, listeners know that my brother struggled with addiction before he was 13 years old. And so my, how I grew up and identified in life was to just be perfect. If I could just be perfect enough, I could save him and my family would be okay. Except the problem with trying to save a 13 year old drug addict is you can't. And no matter what I do, I couldn't. And, and so I cultivated this deep belief that it was because of me or something wrong with me somehow as a sister, this is the belief I took on. And I, I really believed also that, uh, that I was going to be abandoned. That's my core wound as well. And I, I love how you put it so elegantly. You're, you're putting your toe outside that circle. You're dipping it outside that circle with people that have probably earned the right to be trusted. Not just anyone should know what you want. And with, I, you know, I learned the hard way by just trying to be vulnerable. There's people I, I shouldn't have, they were too far. They, never, they didn't earn the right for me to trust yeah. them. And I trusted and got burned. And the hard thing about that is then it like fulfills the belief. You're like, aha, see, people are dangerous. But then when I learned to first recognize, like, does this person, has, have they earned the right for me to trust them enough to dip my toe in this way? I was surprised that the people that were trustworthy, I suppose, for lack of a better word to put it right now, um, when I dip my toe in, they were there to catch me or to, to hold on to my toe and, and really wanted to hear everything. So, so thanks for sharing that bit. And so you went through that relationship at ends. <clears throat> what did that do for that, that wound? It, it exacerbated it. I, I behaved in a way that forced my ex-wife to confirm everything that I had been secretly afraid of, that deep down I was a terrible person, that I was not a good guy. And her narrative, of course, became that I was abusive because I, you know, I, unlike my father, I was not violent. I didn't hit anyone. I did not, you know, there, there was nothing there. There was nothing physical or, um, or, or anything along those lines, but I was very dishonest. And when you lie in a relationship, you eventually get caught lying. And then you lie about that. You lie your way out of it. And then, you know, but there's a, there's a point at which it's, you, you're really causing people to doubt their sanity and it borders on gaslighting and, when you are being sexually unfaithful, you might still be engaging in sex with your partner and, and that can put someone's sexual health at risk. And, 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 and any rational person, if, if particularly if you grow up in a, in a society that sort of harps on infidelity as, as, as one of the highest crimes you can commit, um, you know, my, my narrative led to a, a level of guilt that um, this person was going to hate me forever and rightfully so. And it, and it contributed to self-harm and suicide attempts. And that, uh, you know, I, 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 I have, I have great compassion for my ex. And I also spent a lot of time hoping and wishing that she would react differently uh, or would have reacted differently. And I, when I began to heal, or, and, and that happened through a lot of therapy and various modalities, and I got involved in other relationships, particularly with Amanda, I had the opportunity to, to show up in, 
in ways that began to heal me. And so if there were places in our relationship where Amanda was dishonest, where Amanda hid things from me, or Amanda was out of integrity, uh, you know, early in, in, in our, her experience of polyamory and not feeling comfortable to share some of the things that she was interested in and, and therefore, you know, um, behaved in, in ways that were like, oh, you know, they're fine. But, it, it, you know, if we had expanded the relationship, but within that, within the definitions of what was available at the time and the way that I was able to show up was rather than to explicitly be angry uh, at Amanda for not sharing things with me, I thought what would have been helpful to me in those moments where my ex-wife found that I had been out of integrity. And I looked at that as an opportunity to behave in accordance with what I would have needed. And I have always ever said to any person, since that time, I've said to any person who behaves in a way that is hurtful to me, particularly if there's dishonesty involved, what could I have done to have helped you feel safe to share this so that you didn't feel you had to hide it? And that has been one of the most healing things to, to show that it is possible, even when you're hurt, even when you feel betrayed, to look at it as a as an opportunity to change your own behavior and to create safety. And, and how could I have done that? And let's, let's move forward because instead the opportunity is if, if I get angry and I yell at this person, I'm going to make them feel more ashamed. If I punish this person, perhaps the only thing that will happen is what happened in my own relationship where all it did is make me, the, the ultimate result was I felt I have to get better at hiding these things, right? So in, the, in that moment, I was like, I'm the worst. I have to heal this. I'll be better. But then down the road, when these same patterns would begin to activate again, there was this unconscious belief that the number one thing is, is you know, at, once I found myself in the midst of another affair, uh, I realized, oh my God, I just, I just have to get better at hiding this, you know, and I, and I kept telling myself, I'll end it next time. And all of the lies that, that you tell yourself. But so I thought for everyone in my life, my commitment to myself is in places of dishonesty, how can I first meet them with safety and compassion? And then once they feel safe and know that there aren't, that they will not be abandoned, that they are still loved, that they're still worthy a few days later, we could address it and, and we can talk about my pain at another time. But first, let's, let's really figure out why it happened. What, what I think I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a couple of stories here, but one of the stories I'm, I'm kind of hearing is it seems like you really did want safety from your ex. Maybe you wish that she could have heard what was happening without all the hate. It sounds like you're taking out an ability, but there's a small piece of you that wishes she understood some of it. Certainly. I, I think there's there's a larger piece of me that wishes I would have had the language to explain it, even in the face of her anger. Mm -hmm. If I had simply, in, instead of shrinking and and hiding who I was and saying, you're, you're right, I'm terrible, I never should have. If I had instead said, I understand how badly this hurt you and I, and I understand that my behavior was unconscionable and it was outside of the bounds of the container that we have created and it was completely out of integrity. And also, 
this is telling me something about myself and I'd like to take that information and learn about it. And you're the person I trust most in the world. And I understand that you are hurt. And I understand that maybe now is not the time, but rather than hate myself for doing this, I want to learn about the person I am and why I did it. Because I knew that this was a potential consequence. I'm not stupid. I'm not, I'm not a person who believed I would inver- that I'd get away with it forever. And yet still, I risked everything for this behavior. So either I'm completely compulsive and I cannot control my behavior, or there is something deeper that needs to be resolved, whether that is the need for chaos or the need for this to be expressed, or in this case, both. And I, and I wish that I had the language and I wish that I had the, the, the emotional stability and wherewithal. Instead, I, I experienced only shame. And, and, the more she, and, and the more she exhibited anger, the more that shame got twisted with guilt. And, and instead of an opportunity for self-growth, it just became you know, it, it, it inculcated more, more hiding, more shadow. So you get to a place where you start going to therapy, you start to become aware of this, the chaos that's being replicated in your life uh, mm. that you can't speak up. What was the first step in beginning to actually express yourself and own some of your truth? The, I'd been in therapy for years and I couldn't understand what the root of this was. And um, I had an experience that unearthed memory of sexual trauma. And I, I went, I went 34 years of my life or, or rough, maybe 33 years of my life. Um, I was 30 rather sick. I was 33 years old when I began to unearth my sexual trauma that had happened when I was five or six years old. So it had been two and a half decades plus of not knowing this. And the experience of unearthing that and beginning the exploration of examining that trauma, that sort of created the light bulb moment of, oh, this is at the root of so much of this um, sexual misbehavior. It's why I cannot be honest about my sexuality because I experience I cannot experience sex without shame because I I was I was abused as a child by by my great uncle who 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 I was in a position where I could not be honest with the other adults in my life where I was constantly told to hide this and once I began to work on that then um, by that time I was out of the marriage and I was surrounding myself with people who were just, you know, who, who were already in the poly community or who were open or who were, who were more sexually egalitarian in various ways. And the things that I expressed in terms of my desires were not uh, jarring for them. And so they, they themselves might not have been inherently safer as people or more emotionally capable or more compassionate but simply their set of interests and their lifestyle and their own sexual templates were, uh, yeah, there was, there was an automatic acceptance just based on, on who they were and how they lived their lives. And that, that allowed me to begin exploration, uh, at, at least, you know, both, both in my life, but also, uh, in my community in a way that I, I was not, um, that I was not ashamed. And I had, you know, a, a long, a long road, 
and, and I'm still walking it, but there was one, um, there's one story in particular that I will share, I'll share the abridged version. Uh, it was the, is April of, I believe 2016. And it was the first ever sex party that I went to. And I was there with a, a woman I was dating and, and a few friends of ours. And I had never been in an environment that was so freeing and where everyone was accepting of my kinks, of my quirks, of my, of my poly. And, you know, it was obviously it was like a, from a carnal perspective, it was a, it was very exciting. It was fun to, to go and behave in this way and have group sex, et cetera, which group sex was not new for me at that point, but, but to have it in this environment was, but the thing that was most meaningful. I remember leaving this party and walking out of this townhouse in Brooklyn at 6.30 in the morning and the, looking eastward and the sun was rising and turning west and, and seeing Manhattan in the distance. And there was a this epiphanous experience in which I realized that this was beautiful. And, and the opportunity was to accept it. And I realized that there were two houses, really, I mean, metaphorically. And in one house, I was broken and wrong, and I had commitment issues, and everything that I was was resultant of trauma. My entire personality was a trauma response. And in the other house, I, I'm just a person who has a, a, a sexual orientation and a template that is different than what is purported to be normal and I'm not fit for the compulsory system and it is beautiful and right and it can be done effectively and I can have amazing relationships and so in one house I'm broken and in the other house I'm whole and I just realized I can't live in the first fucking house anymore and and it was that moment at 6 30 in the morning April of, of 2016 was was so healing for me and began to Really, it, it was a, it pushed everything forward in a very significant way. It sounds like going to that sex party, like you described, it's, it's carnal, it's exciting, but it also gave you the opportunity to express yourself more fully and not be judged and accept, be yes. accepted and like have belonging for who you were. And it sounds like it gave you a glimpse of what was possible for you. Absolutely. And that experience informs so much of why I am very open about poly and kink and, and the, the experience that I have because there is something so powerful about being seen, but also feeling not alone. And the, you know, this experience of walking in and there's like, here's 70 other people who are just like you and just being like, Oh my God, I'm not, I'm not weird. I'm not wrong. I use my platform to try to create that same type of experience for my audience, because I do want them, if they're not, if that's not available elsewhere in their life, it is available here where they can, they can be seen and heard and, and feel, oh, this is normal. And, and, and so I do, I do my best to destigmatize and normalize because it has been so fundamentally healing for me. Well, you do a good job of that. You do a good job of sharing and bringing people into alternative points of view and, and helping people understand who um, even even aren't poly, but you you have a good insight. Like you truthfully helped me understand poly, understand my poly clients better. And I'm sure 
that you're helping. So, well, I re, I watch your stories daily. So I also know that by watching them, how many people that you help that relate and, and you've given voice to their experience. And so the other thing I'm curious about is after you learned of the sexual abuse, it sounds like that was also a light bulb moment that helped you understand what had been going on in your life and a, was like a, a gateway, I guess, it sounds like almost to moving forward in a different way. Is that accurate? I would say so. It, it certainly opened, um, th- that bell could not be unwrung once I, right, I right. knew that, you know, or it, it really was a Pandora's box, I suppose is a better metaphor. And it, it really did give me clarity about so much. Mm-hmm. And one of those things was about my, my father who, who was very physically abusive to me and realizing that my the, the person who had abused, had sexually abused me was my great uncle, which means that he was very present in my father's young life as a child. And it seemed automatic, like axiomatic that, that my father had also been sexually abused when, when he was a child. And, and that manifested in his, his rage, which it got expressed outwardly to, to my mother and I. And I realized I have to, I have to heal this. I, I cannot pass this on in any way. And, you know, I, I misbehaved. I was, uh, I was acting out from my trauma um, in my romantic and sexual relationships. I was not, not physically abusive, but I was dangerous in my own way. And so that it clarified a lot. And, and I think um, to, to the extent that I was able to understand my father it did help move past some of that anger and yeah it was it was a it was definitely a pivotal realization and Mm -hmm. to this day helps me be compassionate and hold space and the number one thing I would say is my my trauma does not excuse my bad behavior it explains it it informs it, but it is my responsibility to heal. And so I take absolute ownership, responsibility, and accountability for all of the ways that I have shown up poorly in my relationships, for every lie I've told, for every person I've cheated on, for every person outside of my relationships who I have, I, I lied to and told them that I was either single or that this was this was in bounds, and all of the places that I have been messy and... and um, Similarly, it helps me forgive the, the other people in, in my life who have hurt me, who have acted out in, in, you know, from their abuse and, and their, their own traumas and their, you know, in the places where they showed up negatively because of substance abuse, et cetera. So trauma does not excuse bad behavior. But until you recognize it, it really is challenging to figure out how to address the bad behavior because you just think I'm a bad person. And I, I really, again, I cannot begin to, to describe the degree to which I am fully available to have conversations with anyone I have hurt or anyone who has been negatively impacted by my behaviors. Um, because I, you know, when I say I take responsibility for it, that's not just lip service. It's not just me saying it on a podcast because it sounds good. And, and I'm, I feel really proud to say I've had many of those conversations with people and, and, and reached out. And so that is, that's so important. 
And I do hope somewhere down the line, I'll be able to have some sort of, uh, you know, reconciliation with other people with, with whom I've had challenges. I think you, you keep raising a really good point. There's a very big difference between understanding what happened and taking responsibility. And I think even a good apology one of the good one of the components of a good apology is both people understanding have a having a comprehensive understanding of what really happened there and then being able to take accountability for your actions and and where you went wrong even even though that happened and you're doing a really nice job outlining that and i see you uh, trying to take a lot of responsibility here so let's let's go in a different direction here so you've gone through all this in life you go through the divorce you learn so much about yourself, you understand about abandonment, you're understanding your sexuality, some of the um, some of the places of your sexuality you didn't understand. Finally, you're feeling this place of acceptance, belonging with who you are and a sexual direction you could go. And eventually, I know in this story, you find yourself in love again. Yes. So fast forward us now to the meeting of Amanda and what it was like to begin to fall in love? Amanda and I met through mutual friends. She and I had five or six friends who were shocked when they found out that we did not know one another because we had both come from similar industries. We had both moved from the online fitness space into the online business coaching space, but we had existed on different continents in this same world. She had been very big on social media, whereas I had been more of a writer. And because of that, we'd, we'd missed one another. And so we are introduced by mutual friends and uh, we went and got coffee. I was at the tail end of still being in the marriage, though by that point I was, I was more or less living back in New York. She was in another relationship um, with, with her, 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 to that point, her, most long-term partner. And so we just really had a professional sort of lunch. And from then, I I, I never, um, you know, because Amanda had come from like the online fitness space, I understood that she was often sexualized. And I, I just, that's, that is kind of abhorrent to me that, you know, just like seeing some of the comments on her, on her social media. So I, I never viewed Amanda as a romantic or, or sexual op option for me. So I just treated her like a person and I never realized that she might be interested in me. And I, I wasn't, I, truthfully, I was not interested in her at all. She was also, you know, at that point, I think we met, she was maybe just turning 24 and, um, but we had a friendship and I, I kept up with her on social media and I would reach out from time to time to just say, Hey, is there anything I could do for you? Like, you know, just being friends. And then at some point she was in New York where I was living and we got lunch. I, at that point, I was with another woman at, who, who was a follower of Amanda's and they'd met once or twice before. And so the three of us got lunch together and again, totally professional. And then a few months later, we had really built this friendship and had a very lengthy conversation just sort of about what we were going through. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm really connecting. This is a good, I'm, I'm building a really cool friendship here. This person has a really good head on their shoulders. They understand trauma. They have a lot of compassion. And then at some point, Amanda was in Las Vegas with, with friends. I was in New York and I saw, this is, the, this is the twist in the story. I saw that Amanda put on her stories that she was going to see 
Taking Back Sunday the next day. Taking Back Sunday, for those who don't know, is an emo band from the early 2000s. They're from Long Island. They're one of my favorite bands. And Amanda likes them very much as well. And so as a friend, I just I just responded to her story. Oh, it's so cool that you're seeing them. I, I'm going to check flights. I might come out to Vegas and, and, and see them with you guys, because she was with our mutual friends who knew us both. I wound up not going. I did not stop to think that Amanda might perceive that as a, as a romantic overture, which is what happened. She thought, wow, this guy is like, he's going to fly out to Vegas to see me. I was just thinking, I'm going to go see this band that I've been listening to since I was 18 years old. And I'll go see a bunch of my friends who Amanda's hanging out with, and I'll get to hang out with my new friend, Amanda. And so that, that really opened the door. Once she, again, she walked away believing that I was romantically interested in her. And so then she started to contact me more. Our, our, our text message conversations got a little friendlier, a little flirtier. And then we were having a very practical conversation about polyamory and, and how it works. Again, I was in a relationship, I was in a poly relationship. And she asked me, so how does it, how does it work if you were interested in someone? And I gave her a very like formulaic response. I say, you know, you, you say with all respect, I, I feel connected to you. And, and I would maybe, you know, if, if you're open to it, I'd like to have a conversation about maybe exploring a sexual connection. And she said, oh, wow, that's really cool. It's respectful and direct. And then the next day she texted me and she's like, hey, I feel really connected to you. And I was wondering if you might be open to exploring a sexual connection. And it was at that moment, I was like, oh, oh, that's what this is. I had no idea that she was into me until she literally said, I would like to have sex with you, which is a, a really just a cool thing that, uh, you know, I'm very like looking back at how she, she conducts herself. She's very, it was really, I was proud of her. And that sort of began our flirtation. And once I knew that she was interested, I allowed myself to view her as an option. And we began FaceTiming and having more frequent phone calls and text messages. And really that connection happened uh, over a few months. And, and we got to hang out a few times and she, um, she came to New York, I went to LA and we fell in love. And my- It sounds like you were very thoughtful in being upfront with her right away. Yes, I, I, you know, primarily is I, I understand that um, as just as a man who is polyamorous, um, there I, I don't ever want anyone to walk into a conversation with me with their guard up, thinking because he's poly and a man, he's going to try and have sex with everyone, every woman who speaks to him. So my policy is I never assume anyone is interested in me. I, it doesn't matter how quote unquote obvious they make it until someone actually says the words, I would like to go on a date with you. I just assume everybody is, is being friendly because it is, it's probably better to assume no one wants to have sex with you and be wrong, you know, occasionally than to assume everybody wants to have sex with you and be wrong most of the time. And, you know, that's, that's how I create more safety for the women in my life. Uh, but yeah, I was totally open with her. She knew I was poly. She, you know, I, when she expressed interest, the first thing I did was talk to my partner, the, the woman whom I was dating at the time. And then we started seeing each other romantically. My other relationship ended shortly thereafter. 
Um, not any really because of Amanda or anything like that. It was just, it had run its course. And that's kind of an interesting thing about Polly, how you, you're sort of on these various parallel tracks. And, um, and, and sometimes there is, um, there is interference or sometimes there is influence from one to the other, but often they, they can operate completely independently. And there was, there was um, you know, some challenge there. But eventually, Amanda and I, um, you know, the, the other relationship ended, and I, I knew very, you know, I knew that I that it was Amanda. Like I just knew she that that she was something special, and and I and part of me recognized myself in her and recognized something so special, and that scared me because that had happened with my ex-wife, and I pulled away from her because I thought maybe this is a trauma response. Maybe I am looking for something codependent. Perhaps this feeling of being drawn to her is something that is, um, is, is an indicator of danger. And I'm, I'm going to get myself in a bad situation. And so I pulled back from her and, and I was very, I kept her at arm's distance for a couple of months. And finally she said something along the lines of like, Hey, dummy, just let me love you. And, and we had a full conversation. I expressed all of my fears that I was worried that the, the intensity of my feelings for her might be an indicator that I am in a, in a trauma response, that, that, that this is a trauma bond in some way. And we worked through all of that. And, and she was very clear that it wasn't. And um, she visited me in New York. I'll end this story on a fun note because this is a true story. She visited me in New York. She came, she was visiting her family in Providence, Rhode Island, four hours north of New York for Christmas. And so she took a train down on December 26th. And we had two amazing days together and did a lot of conversation, a lot of deep work. And, and I, I don't, yeah, it was, it was nuts. And then on December 28th, I got on a train with her and went back to Providence, Rhode Island, and I met her family for the first time, and I met her mother, Linda, and I said, hi, my name is John, it's so lovely to meet you, I'm going to marry your daughter, and um, she was like, okay, great, awesome, and they were instantly accepting, and they knew that I was like completely in love with Amanda, they had questions about Polly, and over the next several months, it was really about helping them feel safe, and just being in integrity all the time. And, and uh, yeah, then Amanda and I got engaged about three years later. And um, tomorrow we have a call with her mom and our wedding planner, so. Oh, exciting, exciting. Well, I'm hearing that a few really important pieces. One, you help them feel safe uh, with, with what was going to happen, what polyamory was, how you guys were gonna do that, that meant such a way for your relationship, that family. But what I heard there, that was a really special moment is you pushing away and her saying, Hey, dummy, uh, how about no? And in whatever way she did that. And I'm curious, what was different about you at that time that you could be receptive to her saying like, uh, how about no? Like, let's, let's talk about this. How could you show up and be honest? Well, I think that just the awareness that I might this might be trauma related. This might be codependency. This might be, you know, my, uh, my, my past pattern, you know, just trying to cling on to anyone to prevent me from being alone. Just awareness of that um, 
really made me look at everything with a more critical eye and, and perhaps, um, you know, so, so my resistance was to just letting it, just letting it happen. I didn't want to move forward without deep conversation about why we felt so connected and what she wanted. And, and, and really we had conversations about what it was that I, I loved about her. And, and the thing that I, I immediately, I just, I love who I get to be in the relationship. You know, it was the first time in my life where I felt I don't have to, like I had told everything, told Amanda everything that had ever done, every bad thing I'd, I'd confessed, bared my soul in a way that, I, you know, I, I, I was like, if this woman is going to run from this, that's okay, because I'm actually trying to push her away. I'm, I'm trying to show her, no, I'm not good enough. I'm terrible. Please, please look at me and, and all of this horror that I have done. And she didn't make me pay for any of it. She said, I see you and I see that you're trying to be better. And I accept that um, there, you might still have patterns and you might act out of your trauma or out of integrity. But I, I believe that you are at heart a, a good person, a, a really good man. And you, you don't have to come into this relationship trying to prove yourself, trying to prove that you're not a bad man. You could just come in and be a good one. And what's that like to have her say that, that she believes you're a good man to, to hear everything and still say like, I'm here. I don't, I, there's, and I'm getting choked up to stop me. It was, it was one of the, the single most profound experiences in my life. One of the most healing where here is a person who has never done and who has never misbehaved in a relationship, who has, does not have a lot of trauma, who does not. Amanda is pure white light. I always tell people, I believe Amanda is, is the best person on the planet. And she's the most quality human being I've ever met. And here is this person who um, is, is willing to look at all of the places I have hurt other people and most I've hurt myself and the places I have been hurt and the places I've been dishonest and said, I see that and you don't have to be dishonest with me. You can actually just tell me and I promise we'll talk about it. And I broke down and cried. I, I, I wept in a way that I think is typically reserved for grief. And I, and I just racking sobs and, uh, um, and she held me and she held space. And, um, I didn't, when I entered the relationship, I didn't have to be a person who had committed all these sins. I was a person who was a person and I was human and I was allowed to have messed up. And, um, and yeah, there, there's, there's really no way to say it other than I felt, I believed her when she said I was a good man. I can see that all over you. At this point in your relationship, do you ever need her to tell you that again, that you're a good man? She accepts you. Yeah, all the time. I, some, you know, like sometimes I just, uh, you know, I, I have dreams about my trauma or I, um, anything can, some, it can be triggered by anything. It can, it can be, uh, and here's an example. Um, we were on one of our coaching calls and I 
received a call from my sister letting me know that my mother had passed away. And although there was nothing I could have done and there was no way I really could have known that it was going to happen, the fact that I, I had allowed my relationship with my mother to fray, even though she was sick, I, I immediately internalized that. And I, am I, am I a bad son? Was, could I have been better? And of course I could have been better in a dozen ways. My mother could have been better in 10 dozen ways. And just, am I a bad, am I a bad person? Am I, am I not a good man? Because I wasn't magically aware that that was going to be the day my mother passed. And it, it's helpful to see this woman who I love and respect more than anyone on the world and said, yeah, you're, I see that you're in pain and perhaps you, you could have forgiven your mother in a way that um, allowed you to be there with her more often. But is it, is it always your job to be the bigger person? You can be a good man without always needing to be the better man in every relationship, in every situation you're a good man and I see you. So yeah, I, um, you know, it's been, we've been in a relationship for three years and I've been healing for five, but that there's still 30 plus years of self-loathing and the programming and all that self-talk that, uh, that creeps up from time to time. And there's still places that I make mistakes. There's still times, even, even in our relationship where I don't feel entirely safe to, um, to, to show uh, or, or to tell and, you know, things that aren't, you know, like aren't, aren't really relevant and, you know, I don't always share. And then uh, it'll come up later. I'm like, Oh yeah, I probably should have told you that thing. Um, and she does the same thing. And, and I, I never think that Amanda is, is not a good woman because she's been having um, a conversation with, uh, you know, like a, like a, a flirty, conversation with a person that she didn't tell me about um i'm just like oh yeah like you probably should have told me how can i have made you feel more safe and so when i do something like that um it doesn't make me a bad guy um you know the the times that are most rough is when when i hurt someone or when you know when i have a bad or not a bad breakup when i when i have even a good breakup outside of our relationship and think like here's this person who is hurting, who, who wanted more from the relationship than I could, I could conceivably give. And, and was I not upfront enough about that, et cetera. And, and you know, there are all, all sorts of places we can still be messy. Yeah. And, and thank you for sharing that. And I think you've, I think what's so powerful is just to understand, like we can go through things and sometimes we need to hear from our partner again and again, that we're not whatever we think we are. And there's, I think sometimes nothing more healing than hearing those words and that reassurance or validation from someone that does see you. They do know you and they can tell you kind of the truth. And then to, to get that reassurance, like, okay, no, you're still a good person. And yes, these things have happened and I still see you and it's still not true. And I think that's really, really powerful. So I'm hearing all of the ways in which Amanda has shown up for you. And I'm hearing there's also some times where it can be scary to share with her. And I know through your public sharing on the internet, there's been breakups that, that you have gone through. There's been other women that you've been with. And part of being in the open relationship means finding a way for if both of you have other sexual partners to be safe with each other. And I know a lot of people that need like reassurance or validation, they get a lot of pushback. Well, how come you need that? How come you need reassurance? How come you need validation? You should just know that I love you. Um, and I, like, I wish that was true. Sometimes we just know, but I feel like it's easier said than done sometimes. So can you share a little bit about if Amanda gets scared 
about you being with another woman, mm-hmm. how do you help her feel safe that you are with her? Certainly. One of the interesting things I find about the internet is people carry these really strange competing beliefs and don't realize how contradictory they are. Like um, everybody accepts that words of val- words of um, of affirmation are a totally valid love language, and like it's one it's one fifth of the people. If the distribution is normal, one fifth of people that's their primary love language, right? So no one is ever going to tell you like if your love language is quality time. No one is ever going to say to you, why do you need to spend so much time with your partner for, for you to be okay with them? Like nobody says that, but words of affirmation are so interesting because the words of affirmation are totally valid until we're talking about your ex-boyfriend be who was then a narcissist who needed constant validation. <laughs> so um, words of affirmation are like a, a, a real thing. People want to hear not just that they're special, but why they're special. And why that is varies from from person to person. So I would challenge anyone listening who has ever questioned why their partner needs to hear X, Y, or Z to just accept that that might be their love language and and to provide that. Because if you need if you need quality time or you need physical touch or or you like gifts, no one is going to say like, why are you upset when your husband didn't get you an anniversary gift or your wife didn't get you a birthday gift? Because that's your love language. If Amanda, Amanda and I don't buy each other gifts, that's we don't care. So words of affirmation is the one where everyone gets a little tricky in any event. Um, yeah, I, I, I am a word person. So like I sing Amanda's praises every day, like every single day. I tell him, I just, I love telling Amanda how beautiful she is, how amazing she is, how special, how smart she is. I, I write her poems. I am, I, Amanda is my favorite TV show. Watching her do anything, it, watching her walk the dog and, and talk to him in a cute voice. I'm just like, you're the, you're the funniest person. Um, so I just, I validate her all the time. I just, I, I very loudly love my woman. And uh, and I think that that sometimes is, is interesting for some people to witness. We have this weird thing about people who loudly love their partners where we wonder if, if it's like me thinks thou dost protest too much. Like if you're being so vocal and so effusive, it must be hiding something else. It's not, I just, we, I just love on her day after day, all day long. But in, to, to your specific question, how do I um, help a man to feel comfortable with um, whenever she might be feeling a certain type of way, whether that is insecurity or just a um, little unsafety around other sexual or romantic partners I have? Uh, for both Amanda and I, we really just need affirmation that the, the that the future is not being threatened by this other relationship. If I'm with someone else, um, Amanda is not, she, she's not prone to believing that I'm going to leave the relationship to be with that other person. Part of that is I tend to choose partners who are not interested in that, who, who don't want to, you know, maybe, maybe they have other partners, maybe they are in an exploratory phase in their life. Um, 
but the, the times that it's gotten really challenging are when I have been with someone who wants more than I can offer. And then that makes Amanda feel unsafe. And that often, you know, I, I like to say the, um, the connection outgrows the container. Um, sometimes the person is in another state and I can't see them as often as they would like, et cetera. But Amanda is not, she's not threatened by me having sexual connections with other women. That's not her template. She understands that I like novelty and she understands that there are, are ways that I connect sexually with other people that are a little different than I connect with her. And she's, she's totally good with that. Um, I think perhaps in the very beginning, she, because it was new to her, she might've needed some um, just reassurance that getting something different from someone else um, didn't mean that I was unfulfilled in my relation with her. It's just, it's just different. It's just novel. And, and a lot of the ways that resolved itself was when we began to have more group experiences or when she began to more, um, more intently explore her sexuality and came into her own and as, as a bisexual woman and just sort of realizing, well, there's ways that I connect with women sexually, that she, she, Amanda, connects with women sexually that give her something completely different than um, she gets from me in ways that she connects with other men that give her something completely different. And similarly, I, I feel that same way. So, you know, this, if I'm, if I'm with another woman, it's not that I, that, that I'm replacing something or, or trying to supersede something that I'm not getting from Amanda. It's, it's literally just different. And um, sometimes just newness, sometimes, you know, like, you know, I, I often tell Amanda, you know, I, I will take her phone and I will swipe for, for guys, for her, swipe on guys for her. And I'm like, what about the, she, you know, she's, she's merciless. She's like, no, not that guy, not that guy. But um, there's something exciting about going on a date with a person who has never heard your stories before, who has never, you know, who, and, and finding out what, what their favorite movie when they were in the seventh grade is. There's something exciting about being in that, that discovery, that nervousness. And no matter how, much I love Amanda, no matter how much I validate her, no matter how much I praise her, no matter how safe and secure and stable I am for Amanda, I could be all those things, but I can never be new again. And so I understand that sometimes she just wants that feeling of novelty and newness and excitement. And we have had all of those, um, those conversations and we support each other through that. And the, you just said one super important word. It was that conversations you've had and supporting each other through that. And I want to highlight, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you know, getting this visual of you, you sitting on the couch with Amanda, you're swiping, yeah. but it sounds like you've kind of moved from a lot of the behaviors you're doing in the past to now it's very in the light. And part of what you and Amanda are doing is transparent and honest. Is that yes. accurate? Yes. And well, there are, there are still ways that, that both of us, um, have have had what I would call regressions or have relapsed into old patterns. Um, uh, there was a, a time when Amanda connected with someone who I didn't feel comfortable with, not for any, it wasn't about them. It was just the, the time and the place of the relationship. It wasn't right. And Amanda, you know, um, she was not honest with me and she continued to, to sort of see this person. And then that came to light 
And it was I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's very big. That's that's out of integrity. And um, and so her pattern for a little while was if she felt that I was going to be challenged by a particular individual, she would feel really scared to express interest in that person. And that would create a situation where she either had to stop talking to them or she, you know, it, it might, it might um, progress in a way that um, could lead, could lead to dishonesty, could lead to a situation for dishonesty. And that, you know, we had to work through this feeling of her believing in her heart, in her body, this feeling of unsafety that if I tell John I am interested in this person, he will be hurt. And the truth is, the facts are, even if hearing that her interest in this particular person, even if that is difficult for me, I actually can handle that and we can handle that and we'll work through it. And, um, you know, there we probably had uh, two or three go rounds with versions of that pattern. And um, for my own um own pattern. Um, this is this is a big admission. Um, there was a person with whom I had sex without without sharing it with Amanda. And then when that came to light, she was just like, "Fuck's the matter with you? You could have just told me that." And I was like, "Yeah, I know. I don't. I, why did I do that?" And there was just like a real conversation, um, you know, because like all of the other people with whom I've had sexual relationships, I was very upfront. I disclose all the time. I have no need to hide anything from Amanda. Um, there was just a period, this particular person presented themselves in, uh, at a time where I, I did not believe we would, we would have a sexual connection. I thought we were going to be friends. And then we just sort of found this thing happening. And my immediate reaction was, oh, I don't want to like, it was crazy. Like, I don't want to ruin my perfect record. I, I better hide this. And it was, um, you know, in, in that moment that, that the physical, um, uh, um, escalation began to happen, it did cross my mind, like, oh, I should, I should stop this and just sort of let Amanda know what's going on. And I, I rationalized that I didn't have to, because of course she was going to say yes. And, you know, like, do I really want to like go through all the, 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 the bureaucracy of having this conversation and it's going to, and I, it was, it was just dumb. It was a dumb, silly thing that was dishonest and deceitful. And I, um, I, I didn't let the other person I was with like in on, on my internal dialogue. And they just assumed that because I'm poly, like this was totally okay. And so then, you know, when, when it came to light, when Amanda and I had that discussion, um, she was challenged by it, but ultimately it was, it was a, another opportunity for us to, um, to just create safety for one another. And um, so, you know, on, on her end, she has, we have worked through her belief that the people she chooses are in some way harmful to me. And on my end, we have worked through the, the belief that if I am in a, that if I'm in a situation or if it's like a last minute thing, then I've done something wrong because typically there's a lot of lead up and disclosure, like, Hey, I'm going to go on a date with this person, et cetera. Um, and so in my belief that she would be angry, 
Um, and so we, yeah, we've, we've created new, new rule sets to accommodate those behaviors. And it's been, it, that's been a beautiful conversation and a beautiful, um, you know, there, there are spurts of disappointment or what could be called anger, but mostly it's, um, it's not annoyance. It's, it's this feeling of like, ugh, like exasperation, like really, like you absolutely did not have, you could have just asked, it would have been fine. And it's yeah. this weird feeling that you just kind of get with your best friend or your dog or just like, really again, but come on. And it's, it, it's not, it's not anger. It's not, you're a bad person. It's just like, you know, like, it's fine. You just tell me it's just, it's fine. Yeah. And it's, it's such a cool little thing to be able to experience in politics, it's, like, it, it's this is a weird comparison, but it's it's a very ultimately it's a very similar reaction to if I eat Amanda's leftovers. She's like, I was really I was saving that. You do this, come on, man, you know better. And like that same sort of energy is ultimately what it boiled down to when I had sex with someone without telling her. And and the same thing, like. Um, you know, like it, for her, it's like getting to this place where she's having conversations with people that, you know, she's not disclosing with me. It was like, you really got to fill the tank because I'm getting anxiety when it's, when I like go in the car and it's below E. And so it's the same. And so we worked through all that and it's, and, and those, you're right. It, it did require deep conversations, but there was this feeling that I was going to be rejected when I you know, when I say things like, actually, um, there was something in it for me. There was, there was something appealing about not having to check in about, there was something sexy and something I, I actually liked about moving forward with this connection without having to have all of the upfront dialogue. There was something about that. It felt very autonomous, very sovereign. And then trying to figure out, do we need to um, create space for that? Do we need to create space for each of us to have um, the, the, the opportunity to make split second decisions and disclose after the fact versus um, the, the current, you know, what was then the, the current structure, which was like everything needs to be disclosed and discussed ahead of time. And that, that created a lot that would had a lot of shame for me. Like, why do I, oh God, why do I, why do I not want to tell her? Why is it sometimes sexier for me to the idea of like, I just want to do this and just like make that decision. And, and ultimately it came down to autonomy and freedom. And, and then we've, we've created a system for that. And, and, um, but it was, I had terrible shame around this feeling of, I like being extra slutty and extra uh, sp spontaneous. I like this. I, I like the, opportunity to capitalize, or I, I like the option to capitalize on an opportunity that presents itself in the moment without needing to check in. And does that make me bad? Does that make me wrong? Does that mean that I actually don't want to do the work of poly? Um, no, that's not true. I'm happy to do those things. And, um, but, but I had a lot of shame around that. And, and we had, three or four days worth of conversations and created a new system. What I'm hearing like overarchingly is there's deep conversations. And even if either of you do have a misstep, I'm, I'm hearing um, 
it's maybe not even a misstep, a new realization of a need you had that maybe you didn't know. It sounds like you two are both very committed to approaching having new conversations. You're very committed to making it safe to tell the truth. You're very committed to telling eventually the truth, even if it's not in that instant and yeah. finding a way. It's like, it's almost like you two, I just, I, I like this visual of having a hard time putting into words, but just two people that are very committed to not giving up on each other and too committed to seeing the the human flaws and the imperfections and saying, I love you anyway. Yeah, because we recognize that we want a lifelong partnership and we are two imperfect people who are, are dedicated to communication and that sometimes the lesson we need to learn to have better communication going forward is on the other side of a mistake. And so our, our overriding process, our overriding thesis is I am not, I'm not leaving. Like Amanda, Amanda could, you know, sleep with 10 guys without telling me and then reveal it to me. And I'm not going to leave because of that. Uh, I would just be like, all right, well, well, I was out of character. That's odd. Why did, is that how you want to do things? Um, and so in a poly relationship, when, when ultimately the thing, which is sleeping with another person is not abnormal, the, the violation is not the sex. The violation is um, the lack of communication. So that's the rule that gets broken. And it, it provides an opportunity to ask, well, do we need, so was that, it was that behavior aberrant? Was it something that needs to be addressed? Or do we need to expand the rule set to accommodate that behavior? So if it happens again in the future, it is not breaking the rule. And that is, that's very cool. And that's, that's really, um, it requires emotional conversation, but it also requires deep practical conversation about what shifts we want to make. And that is, that is very, um, it requires very thorough communication and, and thorough honesty. And, and, it, you know, it was challenging for me to say something to her, like, um, I, I am very turned on by the idea of having, um, the option to meet a person and, and just have a sexual experience without first bringing it to you and, you know, disclose after. And, and so the way we expanded that is a conversation about, well, that's probably not effective when we live in the same house, but if I go to, if I'm traveling, if I go to New York, you know, then, and I'm connecting with someone, maybe I'll text her and let her know I'm connecting, but it is, it's within bounds for me to just be in disclosure with that person and then sort of let her know after the fact, if, if, if I want to. And um, just knowing that, just having that freedom immediately made me feel like I'm not a bad person. Like my, my desire for more, salacious or, or more um, spontaneous sex isn't bad. And from there, it, it, the, the emotional charge of secrecy um, was, was lessened. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm, you know, now, now I'm not bad. So there's, you know, we, we, I, I think a lot of times we, um, we get off on what's taboo and yeah. the things that are wrong become sexy. And I think that's one of the things that really creates um, the behavior around cheating. And I can tell you that 
there's no drug that you can do that feels as good as getting away with something. I remember in my marriage, my ex would text me and say like, hey, we need to talk. And I would drive home from the gym or wherever. And I was 100% convinced my marriage, she had found something out. My marriage was about to end. And instead it was some conversation about, you know, about travel or uh, she would need advice on something business related or whatever. And the relief that would flood through my body was like heroin or what I imagine heroin to be. And that can be, that can be very dangerous. And so the, the way that we are very intent, Amanda and I are very intent on setting up our relationship is let's minimize the opportunity for us to need to feel that relief and to create as much safety and disclosure. I, I don't ever want to drive home from somewhere wondering if Amanda has discovered something and, and she will never have to do the same. So I, I, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of disclosure and also a lot of privacy and I, and we trust each other to, to, to share. And that's, and it's so beautiful and it's so amazing. And, and again, I cannot begin to tell you how incredible my fiance is. She is an otherworldly creature. She is an angel. And I am, I, I am astounded astounded by who she is and who she's becoming every day. And I, her, even her mistakes are like whimsical and beautiful. I'm like, it's fine. This is, yeah, we'll just keep, we'll keep working because I am so intent on getting to the finish line with her. I am so intent on doing the work to make her feel safe so that she would never have to lie. And, and if she does, and if there's something that requires in her mind, in her body, feels like she's required to step out of integrity, then we just work through it. And I want to, I want to heal. Um, thank you so much for sharing everything. And I can see just how much work obviously you've done to talk about integrity, stepping into that building containers for it, talking about it, admitting mistakes, being honest about the things that are thrilling because they're bad and then oh, being willing to just make it safe. And, and I love one of the things you said, I wrote it down, better communication is on the other side of mistake. And I think in every couple I've worked through that have come to me for big mistakes, that is the gift of the mistake is it requires us to talk and be vulnerable. I mean, it, after we go through a mistake, it has the opportunity. I always think some, some mistakes, depending on the level, some of them are like a grenade going off. Others of them are like you stepped on a crack, but sometimes after a big mistake, that grenade goes off and it's an opportunity to like when the dust settles and the shrapnel, you clean that all up. Do you leave the other side of that having better communication and, and building up something better, something brighter, something new that was never there before? Or do you just leave everything in wreckage and in shambles? And what I'm hearing this overwhelming story of is you and Amanda having this beautiful commitment to if there's something that goes off in your marriage, whether you step relationship soon to be marriage, you know, you step on a crack or there's a grenade, whatever that might look like, you two are very committed to sorting through the rubble and the dust and, and making it something better, even something new. So I could talk to you forever, but we've got to go. And I just so appreciate your honesty, your humility, taking responsibility, sharing the sides of yourself that I imagine in life would have been hard to share. And then you just so candidly um, being a light for everybody who's gone through things and is afraid to share. And I know this is the things people struggle with every day. So I just feel honored and humbled to have your time and, and thank you so much for being on my show. 
Thank you so much for having me and thank you to everyone for listening. And if I can ask one small favor, if you are listening to this and you and there's something that in particular stands out for you, I'd love if you just sort of screenshot it and share it to your Instagram stories or, or, or forward it to me directly because I, I just would love to know how, um, how this content is, is helping you specifically because that is very validating for me. And it, and it really helps me continue to push my comfort zone and share more and more. So John, where can they send that screenshot? What's your handle? Where can they find you on the internet? I am on Instagram and other places. My in, my handle is just my name, John Romanello. Uh, the I is silent. It's Roman, I-E-L-L-O. And um, you can also, if you want to go to johnromanello.com and join my mailing list, I send out some fun stuff there as well. But Instagram is where I primarily hang out. So I'd love to chat with you there. And I'll link that in the show notes. And uh, John is a, as you, if you haven't been able to tell, he's a beautiful speaker and I'm not sure what he's better at speaking or writing, but even if you don't want to buy whatever he's selling, you're not interested in the content of what, uh, like necessarily where he's going, his writing is something to just read. It just is read worthy, whether or not you're like along that path. I've been hooked into a, a John email wondering why I'm reading this content. And then I realize it's because John wrote it and it's really good. So that's what I have to say about your writing. But anyway, John, thank you again so much. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.